Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have five new movies to review for you. Four of them are brand new, or they were released in theaters or on streaming for the weekend of uh, September 3rd through 5th, uh, 2021. And this, of course, is Labor Day weekend. Will I refer to Labor Day weekend? Not so much, uh, uh, other than to wish you all a very happy and restful Labor Day. If you have the day off, then you certainly deserved it, I assume. So let's just get to the reviews while I take my foot uh, slowly out of my mouth. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. This is the second MCU movie to be released this year, and it's of a character with which very few people who, particularly those who don't read the Marvel comics on a regular basis, are not entirely familiar. This is also, I believe, the first Asian-American superhero, or rather the, yeah, first Asian-American superhero movie. I could be wrong about that, but I'm just going to stick to it. So Shang-Chi was known in the comics since his debut in December of 1973 as the master of Kung Fu and also known as Brother Hand. And he has been in the comics since his inception in late 1972. He was created not by Stan Lee, interestingly enough, but he was created by writer Steve Englehart and artist Jim Starlin. Unlike Black Panther... Shang-Chi has not appeared in an MCU movie until this one, but this is his first appearance, not not to mention his first movie. It probably won't be his last. And Shang-Chi is, in the movie, a native of mainland China, and he is the master of unarmed weaponry-based kung fu. When he moves to America... He is eventually forced to confront his past after being drawn into the Ten Rings organization. What is the Ten Rings organization? Well, I will tell you in uh, very shortly. So thousands of years ago, a man by the name of Zhu Wenwu finds the Ten Rings, which are ten literal rings, which are also mystical weapons that grant their user immortality and great power. They're not that much bigger than a a bracelet, but whoever wears them wears five of them on each of their arms. And Wen Wu amasses an army of warriors called the Ten Rings and conquers many kingdoms and topples governments throughout history. So because he is granted immortality, he, um, in the late 90s, begins searching for the village of Ta Lo, which is said to harbor various mythical beasts in order to expand his power. He finds the entrance of the village through a very complicated bamboo forest, which opens kind of like Moses parting the Red Sea. But unlike Moses parting the Red Sea, nobody has control as to whether these trees open or close for them or not. But he is stopped from entering by the the village's guardian, a woman by the name of Ying Li. And the two fall in love and have two children, one named Shang-Chi, 
who is the main character of this movie. And the other one is a girl named Zay Ling. So uh, there, there's a lot to take in, a lot of characters, certainly. Um, Zhu Wenwu, the father of um, Shang-Chi, who are, whose American name is Sean, is played by uh, Tony Leung. And Tony Leung is not particularly too familiar to uh, contemporary American audiences, but he is a very big deal in his native China. The only film that I think audiences who are not of Asian descent here in America would know him uh, from acting in is a movie that was directed by Ang Lee in 2007 called Lust Caution. But other than that, the movies he has been in, or, or the even the TV shows he's been in, um, have been mainly um, released in China. They've, of course, seen DVD releases here in the United States, but chances are people who aren't of Asian descent probably haven't seen him in other films. But the the same cannot be said for the star of this movie, the guy who plays the titular character, Shang-Chi, Simu Liu. And Simu Liu is a Chinese-Canadian uh, actor. He was born in China and is now a Canadian citizen, although uh, with his... <laughs> With his appeal and his popularity, he will eventually, I'm guessing, uh, earn dual Canadian and American citizenship if he so uh, desires that. But he's been also acting in, in several movies and TV shows. He was actually in a CBC television sitcom called Kim's Convenience, but American audiences will probably not know him from anything else except for this movie. But he makes a great leading man and certainly anchors this movie very well. Not to mention, I think he's going to be uh, the, the next big action star, not necessarily within the MCU universe. And there's a bit of comic relief in here from um, Aquafina, who plays Sean's best American friend, also obviously of Chinese descent. Uh, her name is Katie. And Aquafina is very funny in this movie, but she also serves as a really good sidekick. And even though she doesn't have any martial arts skills, she actually does have one moment of uh, heroism in this movie, which I will not reveal. But also, in addition to Simu Lu as Sean, a.k.a. Shang-Chi, there's also a great performance here by his on-screen sister, Zay Ling, who's played in this movie by Menger Zhang. I'm not going to go into too much of their previous repertoire, but Zay Ling, uh, rather, Mengar Zhang also works very well alongside all the other actors in this film. And there's also some other performances in the, in the movie by such esteemed Chinese actors as Fala Chen, Michelle Yeoh, Wai Yuan, and so on. And they all not only uh, are great in their action sequences, but they're also really good when the action dies down, as it inevitably does in um, good action films for that. But I can't speak for the accuracy of the Chinese mythical legends that you hear about here, because the truth is, even though China has a rich historical legacy, I know very little about it. But I will say that from what I could see from 
Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It not only made a very appealing story, but it also respected Chinese history and culture as well as mythology. And I had a great time watching this as well. The choreography of the Kung Fu sequences were very well done. There's even one, there's, there's one particular sequence that really held my attention and didn't let go until it was over. <clears throat> and this was when Shang-Chi is fighting off his father's foot soldiers on the edge of a, um, a skyscraper in presumably Shanghai that's still being built. And Aquafina is al- alongside him, not doing very much of the fighting, but there are some sequences where it looks like Aquafina or Katie is in danger, and the way she's saved is is quite amazing. But the way that the they styled the camera angles is incredible. It it doesn't look like they just used a, a crane for that. It it looked like they used a lot of. Um, CGI, but not the the kind of cheap CGI, mind you. Of course, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies are held up to a, a very high bar. So high, in fact, you could probably drive a truck underneath it. And by a truck, I probably mean, I most likely mean an 18-wheeler. But Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is a welcome addition to the next phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that did the, the previous phase, which is known to a lot of comic book and movie fans as Phase 3, ended with Avengers Endgame and began with the Black Widow movie. Although the Black Widow movie was a bit more of a prequel, whereas Shang-Chi... And the Legend of the Ten Rings takes place in present day, so I would probably I probably call this the first of the Phase Four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. That's not a look back at certain origins of various characters, but again, Shang Chi is a character who does not technically have superpowers, but that doesn't make him any less appealing than the characters that do have superpowers and I'm not going to give away the people in the Marvel cinematic universe who make cameos in this film, because it is very surprising to see some of these cameos, all of which who are from non Asian backgrounds or at least non uh, Southeast Asian background. So I'm not going to give away who they are, but if you've been keeping up with the Marvel cinematic universe movies for the last couple of years, perhaps even the last couple of decades, you'll know who they are and in what movies they appeared. That's all I'm going to say, though. But I really loved Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I can't make a comparison between this film and the other Marvel Cinematic Universe movies because that would take me a while and that would take a lot of forethought. But I will say it has the amount of energy as well as respect for the Chinese people that you would hope for in a movie, in an American movie like this. And it gets my rating of a knockout. And I should also say that it is directed by a man by the name of Destin Daniel Creighton, who has previously directed such movies as Just Mercy from 2019, which I unfortunately didn't get to see. The Glass Castle, which I did see, and that was lacking a little bit, but that this movie certainly makes up uh, for what the Glass Castle lacked. 
And I, and it wasn't entirely the director's fault that the glass castle fell short of being a great film, but Shang-Chi and the legend of the 10 rings certainly makes up for it and also makes Destin Daniel Creighton, one of the better directors to have directed a Marvel cinematic universe movie. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is one that is technically brand new. Actually, it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival on January 24th, 2020. Why it wasn't released in the theaters sooner, you and I know the answer to that. But it has been released in very limited release in theaters And it's also been given a wider Netflix release on September 3rd, 2021. The movie I'm talking about is Worth. And Worth is the true story about an attorney in Washington, D.C., whose name is Kenneth Feinberg, who is a real person, not a composite character. In in this movie, Worth, he's played by Michael Keaton. And as an attorney in Washington, D.C., He regularly battles against cynicism, bureaucracy, and politics to help the victims of 9-11. So this movie takes place approximately between 2001 and 2003. It is directed by Sarah Colangelo, and I hope I'm pronouncing the last name correctly, but Sarah Colangelo has directed uh, two feature films before this. This is her third. I saw actually her movie The Kindergarten Teacher, which is also a Netflix original that starred Maggie Gyllenhaal a couple of years ago. That was a very good movie. Um, and even though it was it was flawed in in various areas, first of all, it didn't really reach the level of creepiness that I thought it would. And secondly, I never quite forgot it. I never forgot Maggie Gyllenhaal's performance in the film or the one of the little boy that Maggie Gyllenhaal mentors. And also, Sarah uh, Colangelo also directed Little Accidents, which is a drama that I did not see, even though it was released in 2014, and I was hosting the show in 2014. Again, I- I'm not going to get too far into it, but I see a lot of films. I don't see every movie. But my point is that Worth is A, worth watching, and B, probably Sarah Colangelo's best movie to date. But I can't say that. Entirely because I have not seen the her debut feature film, Little Accidents, yet. But this movie uh, takes place actually right before uh, 9-11, and it takes, takes place largely during the aftermath of 9-11. And I thought there actually were some very subtle touches to let you know what life was like on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001 there I, I without spoiling too much there's one scene where you're not told it's 9/11 uh, but you could you see a, a quiet New York neighborhood presumably in Staten Island or Long Island and a, a plane just flies over the the roof of the house and you 
once you go into the house, you see somebody who's in, um, who's a, um, a firefighter who's leaving and, and just briefly saying goodbye. And you can already sense that something bad is going to happen. And, and without the subtitles telling you, you know exactly what day it is. And the way they set that up is very similar to probably how we all were living our lives if we were alive to see and remember 9-11. And this brought back a lot of memories for me, not just the scenes that took place on September 11th itself, but also the, the aftermath in the ensuing weeks, months, and even a few years after uh, the Trade Center and Pentagon attacks, which are seared in our memories and are definitely going to come back to us considering that one week from the date of the show is going to be the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And truth be told, for the most part, as I've been going around working and even doing uh, chores around the house, or I've, I've been thinking about the, where I was during 9-11 and also where I was when the Trade Center Towers got hit, what I was doing, what I was wearing, what happened when I woke up that morning. It's all really coming back to me almost vividly. Uh, but getting back to the movie, Ken Feinberg, who in this movie is played by Michael Keaton, has the difficult and one would say the un unenviable task of compensating the 9-11 victims. And that is a very difficult task considering how many victims there were, literally close to 7,000, and also determining who gets what. And there are various people who work with him on his legal team, including his personal assistant, uh, Camille Byros, who's played by Amy Ryan. There's also some colleagues of his, like, Lee Quinn, who's played by Tate Donovan, and another standout performance by uh, an actress by the name of Shinori Ramanathan, who plays a young associate by the name of uh, Priya Kundi. And they all face opposition not only from grieving 9-11 families or the, the families of uh, the grieving families of 9-11 victims, but also from an independent associate by the name of Charles Wolfe, who's played in this movie by Stanley Tucci. And with Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci in the same movie, I was immediately reminded of Spotlight, so much so that, especially with the camera angles and some of the muted colors throughout this film, it made me think at first it was directed by Tom McCarthy, who superbly directed Spotlight. But... I already told you who the director was, Sarah Colangelo, and my guess is Tom McCarthy probably wishes that he directed this movie. And I thought one of the stronger scenes was actually one between Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci, where they're two opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their views on who should be compensated, how much, and why. And when the two of them meet together in the office, I thought that was a very well-written and also well-acted scene. And while Michael Keaton has been in several great movies, as well as some commercially successful movies, I will say that I think this is probably Michael Keaton's best performance 
to date. He certainly made a worthy comeback with the movie Birdman, which won Best Picture. I don't think it necessarily deserved to win Best Picture over Boyhood, but Michael Keaton was very good in that film. But fortunately, he was also excellent in Spotlight, and he is worth watching in the movie Worth as well. And this movie does not, as far as I know, shy away from the complexity of victim compensation laws, nor does it ignore the plight of some of the, or many of the 9-11 victims. There's one particular standout performance, uh, actually two. The first one is by um, a, an actor by the name of Chris Tardio, who, with whom I was not familiar at first. He plays a character by the name of Frank Donato, who I think was a real person. He's an NYPD officer who got injured um, at 9-11 or at uh, Ground Zero, but survived. But there's another performance by Frank Donato's brother's widow, whose name is Karen Abate, and she's played by a great actress named Laura Benanti. Laura Benanti has had some on-screen um, experience, but she's mostly known for being a Broadway actress. But those of you who have watched The Late Show with Stephen Colbert over the last five years would probably know Laura Benanti as the actress who uh, periodically portrayed Melania Trump on the show. And one of the biggest drawbacks to Donald Trump leaving office is that we don't get to see Laura Benanti as Melania Trump anymore. She did a fantastic imitation of her. But in this film, she has a great scene with Michael Keaton where they meet for the first time. And she made me believe she was um, a, a widow of a 9-11 victim. Just her acting in that film, or in, the, in that scene, and in the film altogether, but most especially that scene, was superb and actually brought tears to my eyes as I was watching her. So Worth is a movie that is going to bring up a lot of uncomfortable feelings, particularly as the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is no less than a week away as of the date that I'm recording the show. But it was very well acted. It's certainly an adult movie that brings about a lot of feelings, uh, particularly of grief, but also of frustration. But even though it's, it delves into a lot of dense legal matters, it was by no means boring, and it gets my rating of a knockout. It is undoubtedly Sarah Colangelo's best movie to date, and hopefully she'll have greater movies to come. Michael Keaton is amazing as the lead in this movie, Ken Feinberg. Stanley Tucci, Amy Ryan, Laura Benanti, Chris Tardio, uh, Sh Shinori Ramanathan, and other actors in this film also turn in great supporting performances. My guess is this may, this is probably going to be nominated for several Academy Awards. The trouble that the Academy Awards are probably going to have next year is who should be nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but Michael Keaton should definitely be nominated for Best Actor. He's even better in this movie than he was in Birdman and Spotlight, and that is saying a lot because both of those were Best Picture winners.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is not exactly brand new, but it's it's new enough. So I'm going to review it right now. The reason I didn't review this on its opening weekend um, is because I was self-quarantining because of a COVID scare in my neighborhood. And that's all I'm going to say about it because I really need to get to this review. The movie I'm reviewing is Candyman. A movie that has a predominantly African-American cast is directed by Nia DaCosta, who actually made history last weekend for being the very first African-American woman to have her movie debut at number one. Not even Ava DuVernay and Cassie Lemons and other notable African-American actresses have had that distinction. I'm very surprised, actually, that Ava DuVernay hasn't reached that yet, but she will. But Nia DaCosta is the first. And Candyman is a remake of a film that came out in the early 90s, which I gotta be honest, I have not actually seen. It came out in 1992, and while I don't remember um, the... (laughs) While I don't exactly remember um, seeing the... Actually, let let me just say that again. While I didn't see the movie, I remember the poster for it. It's of a giant eye with a bee inside it. And that's creepy enough for me. So maybe I didn't um, see it for that reason. But coincidentally enough, I did mention Cassie Lemons as a noteworthy African-American woman director. Cassie Lemons actually acted in the original Candyman. That is quite a coincidence. But in this version, which I believe is a remake, not a sequel... Uh, it is, oh, forgive me. It is actually a sequel to the horror film Candyman, and it returns to the now gentrified Chicago neighborhood where the legend began. So who is the Candyman for those people who haven't seen either movie, either the sequel that I just mentioned or the, uh, original 1992 film. It is, um, it's about an urban legend of a man with, a hand and a hook, or rather a hook for a hand, very much like Captain Hook, but uh, even less uh, child-friendly, who preys on children by offering them candy. And (laughs) I think any reasonable child would run if they saw this figure, but uh, some kids don't, and that is why he is as terrifying as he is. But he's not just a stranger you'd find on the street. He is a supernatural character who people bring about by looking into the mirror and saying the the name Candyman five times. Something that even though I know this is a fictional story, I won't risk it because it's way too creepy for me. So the, the movie centers around an artist named Anthony McCoy, who's played by an actor named Yaha, excuse me, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. And this is his first leading role uh, of which I know. He has been in a number of movies and TV shows so far. He actually was in the new TV series Watchmen, its first season, and a second one will come up. He was in the Netflix original film, The Trial of the Chicago 7, where he played Bobby Seale. That's probably where I remember him the best. But he's also been in movies such as Us, again, another um, underrated 
uh, horror film that Jordan Peele actually directed. And he played um, one of the characters, well, not one of the main characters, but one of the ones who also has a doppelganger who is murderous. And this is, as I said, his first lead role. His uh, girlfriend in the movie is played by, uh, her name is Brianna Cartwright, and she is a very successful um, art dealer. And she's played by Tayona Paris, who I've spoken um, volumes of in terms of my admiration for her. She's been in a couple of uh, lead roles, uh, particularly I, I knew her best from the movie Chai Rock, which was directed by Spike Lee back in 2015. That was an excellent film. And there are other characters in their circle, including a mysterious um, Chicago native named William Burke, no relation, who's played by Coleman Domingo, who is warning Anthony McCoy about the Candyman and what he can do, particularly what he is doing to Anthony McCoy as Anthony McCoy becomes more entranced and obsessed with the Candyman in his art. There's also a good supporting performance in this movie by Nathan Stewart Jarrett, who plays a friend of Anthony and Brianna, who is partly the comic relief. And he's been in a lot of things too. He's a British actor. One of the scene of one of the movies in which I remember him the most is a film that came out in 2019 that was called Mope, where he played an aspiring pornographic actor. Yeah. An aspiring pornographic actor. So somebody who, uh, basically aims for the gutter, but Mope has some funny moments but it is based on a true story, and Nathan Stewart Jarrett played a very pathetic figure in that film, but he played a pathetic figure really well. And I liked him in, in this film as well. And there are a lot of callbacks here to the original Candyman movie, but because I have not seen the original Candyman that came out in 1992, I can't speak to whether or not this Candyman movie does justice. I can tell you this. It is scary. And there are scenes where the bloodshed is implied but not shown that are equally as scary as seeing someone's throat get slashed. It also, as I said earlier, guarantees that I will never look into a mirror and say Candyman five times. I'm even scared of looking into a mirror and saying Biggie Smalls five times based on that 2006 Halloween episode of South Park that you may or may not have seen. It's a really great episode, probably one of the best. But I thought the cast did fantastic in this film. And in addition to the cinematography being very good, there are also moments in this, in this film, which I don't know if the original Candyman film did this, but they involve shadow puppets, both um, when people are making uh, shadow puppet films of their own and also when they're relaying stories that are told in flashback, except instead of flashing back to real life actors, they're flashing back to shadow puppets. But I thought it was a very, uh, good and very unsettling, uh, part of the film that I never quite forget. I actually favorably, favorably compare the shadow puppets in this film to 
The Babadook, which is also another very creepy and unsettling film that I also highly recommend. Probably one of the more original uh, horror films. So while I can't speak to Candyman's originality, I thought that while the film was a sequel to the 1992 film and should have been called something else besides Candyman, I hate it when films that come out you know, decades after another one that are sequels just have the same name as the original film. One prime example of that is the Halloween movie from 2018. It came out 40 years after the original Halloween. It was a sequel, not a remake, yet they called it Halloween. I hate it when that happens, but that doesn't take away from my enjoyment or my adoration of this Candyman movie. I thought it was effectively creepy very unsettling, and also had some interesting things to say about the gentrification of cities nowadays, and something I wasn't expecting from a socio-political point of view into this film, but it fit in seamlessly thanks to the clever writing of the screenplay by not only director Nia DaCosta, but Jordan Peele, who also produced the film, and Wynn Rosenfeld. They did a great job putting this movie together. It was a very effective story. It scared the living daylights out of me in some particular scenes. One scene involved a girl's bathroom in a high school, which I won't give away. I'll I'll just give you the setting, but the way it was shot was particularly impressive. So Candyman did not make the mistake of other um, lesser horror films with an over-reliance on jump scares. The really good horror films are the ones where they build up the tension and I have to put my eyes up to my face and see the movie through my fingers. And that's what I did a couple of times during this Candyman. So Candyman gets my rating of a knockout. It is effectively creepy really scary in its scariest parts. And director Nia DaCosta did an amazing job directing this, as well as not only serving as a tribute, not just a sequel to the original films, but also it incorporated some very interesting and unexpected sociopolitical commentary that didn't feel contrived and felt like it fit in very well. I also should say that Nia DaCosta's next film, which is filming right now, is one that's called The Marvels. Is it part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? You bet it is. It's slated to come out or is subject to come out on November 11th, 2022, but if this Candyman movie is any indication... We're in for a big treat with the Marvels. Knock on wood.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And I got to tell you, before I get into my review of the next film, I was sort of feeling like this particular weekend was, at least when it came to most movies that were original and that were streaming on various streaming platforms, that this was kind of a girly girl week. Because the next two movies I'm going to review are certainly girly girl. And I really just needed to watch the movie Worth to cleanse myself of that girly girl-ness. So the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is an Amazon Plus original, and it is called Cinderella. If you're guessing that this is a retelling of the classic fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm, you're absolutely right. Who asked for a new Cinderella? I don't think anybody did. And this movie, while I admire some parts of it, It just overall wasn't a necessary film, particularly because this Cinderella is a jukebox musical. It is uh, written for the screen and directed by Kay Cannon. And Kay Cannon is a woman, of course. She has uh, directed other previous films, and I would probably say better films. Actually, she's only directed one film before this, and that and that was Blockers, which was a bit problematic in, in terms of its um, story, but it, it actually was pretty good. And John Cena was actually funny in it, believe it or not. But this movie, I think it's, it's very pretty. It, it has some great costumes in it and you can tell the people who are working on the film are having fun with it, or at least they're looking, they're acting like they're having fun. And if they're not having fun, then that just, uh, is particularly, uh, appealing to their um, (laughs) acting talent, or at least it's complimentary of their acting talent. But you know the story of Cinderella, and other than personifying the handsome prince of this movie a little bit more, as well as his relatives like his father and mother, who are the king and queen respectively, and his younger sister who has uh, political or um, (laughs) monarchy ambitions herself, the movie is altogether just not particularly surprising. Uh, Cinderella in this movie is played by Camila Cabello. And Camila Cabello is more of a singer than she is an actress. She sings very well. She was actually formerly a member of the group Fifth Harmony, who was kind of like the Pussycat Dolls of last decade. And, of course, she's a knockout, so it's really no surprise that she's going to win The Handsome Prince. What handsome prince wouldn't she win? I think probably the funniest part of this movie was was Billy Porter, who plays the fabulous godmother. He's not exactly a mother, but he's just way too fabulous, so you don't really care. Uh, Billy Porter, for those of you who don't know, uh, has been on the FX series Pose, and he has made um, <laughs> cameo appearances in so many... TV shows over the last couple of years, uh, playing himself. And he's actually set to play the voice of Audrey too, in a remake of little shop of horrors. But I liked his lines during the film. And I thought he was definitely the bright spot of the film. Everything else I just thought was kind of predictable. I didn't hate the film, but they chose Adina Menzel to play Cinderella's allegedly wicked stepmother, Vivian. And I 
I kind of liked Adina Menzel as the uh, villain of the film, but then again, she played a princess or the voice of a princess in one of the most successful Disney films of all time. So I can't be the only one who finds her playing a villain, let alone an evil stepmother to be a bit jarring in this film. But the one thing I didn't like about the film, I could get into the rest of the cast like Pierce Brosnan as King Rowan and Minnie Driver as Queen Beatrice. I thought that they added a a more dimension to those other royal characters. Where the movie really lost me was the fact that it was a jukebox musical. And no matter how good Camila Cabello can sing, I was my skin was crawling when she began singing Desiree's You, you Gotta Be. That's a great song in and of itself. Why do they have to ruin it with a movie musical? I, I don't know. But there are other moments in this uh, movie where they put in an already established, well-known pop song where they didn't need to. Like, for example, there's a part where Prince Robert, who's played by Nicholas Galatzine, is going to the ball, and all the hopeful princesses sing What a Man by Salt and Peppa featuring En Vogue. And when they started singing, mm, yeah, mm, yeah, whoop, I, I started going, oh no, why did they do this? <laughs> so Cinderella is the adaptation of Cinderella no one asked to have. And I would have respected it a bit more if it were either A, a remake of the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella, um, the original one had Leslie Ann Warren in it that was made for TV back in the 60s. There was a remake of that in the 90s with Brandy as Cinderella and Whitney Houston as the fairy godmother that I thought was very good and also appropriately contemporary. Making Cinderella into jukebox musical was something nobody asked for. It gets my rating of a strikeout because I think with if they actually had songwriters who took the time to write original songs for this, it would have been a little bit better. And I think that they could have done something different with the uh, stepmother and the wicked stepsisters. And it seemed like in the middle there, they tried to shift gears with their intentions and it didn't really work. Plus there are also some mice who are played by James Corden, the late night talk show host, who's had plenty of experiences in musicals, mediocre to bad mediocre being into the woods and the prom and bad being cats. And also his co-stars, James Ackister and Romesh Raganathan, who just talk way too much in this film. There are some funny scenes where they actually turn into human beings, but yeah, when they're mice, they're kind of annoying. So Cinderella is a a miss for me, but I'm sure girls would like it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. 
The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a movie that is a Paramount Plus original that I got to be honest, I was not um, thrilled to see. And five minutes into the film, I wasn't thrilled to watch it either. The movie is called The J-Team, which is not only a Paramount Plus original, it is also a Nickelodeon movie. And The J-Team is a movie about a girl by the name of Jojo who kind of plays herself. She's played by a YouTube sensation by the name of Jojo Siwa, whose whose full name is Joelle Joanny uh, Siwa, who is a native of Omaha, Nebraska, who has amassed a following of 10 million YouTube followers. And it seems like Nickelodeon is kind of jumping on the bandwagon by giving these YouTube personalities movies and TV shows, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the J team is so formulaic and so predictable. In addition to that, and maybe it's just me being a guy, Jojo Siwa is way too much for me. Now she goes by her name, Jojo and One reason I don't think she should go by that name is because Jojo is the name of a very young singer from Foxborough, Massachusetts, who years ago um, had a debut single called Leave Get Out. This was back in 2004. Um, So I was kind of hoping that this would be a movie about that Jojo, whose real name is Joanne Levesque. But no, it's about this girl who who watching her is like if somebody took a big fist of glitter and threw it right in my face. That is what watching her is like. She is always kind of on. And when you hear her first song about how much she loves glitter and how she's going to go out and make today the best day ever. Yeah. It's just way too much for me. So the movie is about uh, Jojo Siwa kind of playing herself, I guess. And she is kicked out of her dance troupe. Um, because it is being run by a dictator who's played by Tisha Campbell, who's otherwise a very likable actress. So I think they could have found somebody even more unlikable to play this role. But what gets me is not, you know, Tisha Campbell and other people who are in the film. It looks like everyone is trying their best. My problem with this movie is that it is so, so, so predictable in addition to the metaphor I used about glitter being thrown in my face. But she's kicked out of a dance troupe, and she starts her own dance squad, which she calls the J-Team, and finds out what dancing truly is, or so the description tells me. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, the J-Team is, again, way too much for me. I know there's an audience for this. I know that... I'm not the audience for this. I'm a guy, a heterosexual male in my late 30s. I can respect that Jojo Siwa has the following that she does. I know literally millions of people, most of whom are girls and some of whom are gay men, really look up to her, and I totally, totally respect that. But this movie does not do her any favors. It is so formulaic and so predictable that even when she decides to... to form her own dance troupe. I knew she was going to do that. In fact, when Tisha Campbell, you know, starts enforcing these rules like no glitter and everybody has to wear gray, I was thinking of shaking Jojo in this movie or reaching my arms out without getting any glitter on them and saying, leave, this isn't your life. Just quit. Or, you know, it seems like you live in the suburbs or close to a big city. Join another dance studio. It's not hard. So I don't know. And also 
I guess uh, there's one actual line that Tisha Campbell spoke that made me laugh because it is exactly how the the way I feel about JoJo Siwa. Tisha Campbell said, and I quote, JoJo, your personality is poking me in the eye. I felt like it was poking me in both eyes and really penetrating very deep. So the J team, I'm giving it my rating of flunk out, not because I don't think the actors in this movie are good. It's just, it is way too much with a very, very predictable story that I think even teenage girls who are fans of Jojo are going to be turned off from watching. Even if they watch the movie from beginning to end, which I reluctantly had to do, and because I was watching this on a streaming service, I had to keep clicking the remote to see how much time I had left. I really don't think people are going to watch this movie more than once, and I honestly commend people who can sit through this and watch it more than once. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are coming out first in theaters and then if I have time on streaming for the weekend of September 10th through September 12th, 2021. The biggest movie, arguably, that's coming out in theaters on September 10th is Malignant. This is a movie about a woman named Madison who is paralyzed by shocking visions of grisly murders, and her torment worsens as she discovers that these waking dreams are in fact terrifying realities. The movie stars Annabelle Wallace, Madison Hassan, George Young, and Michelle Brianna White. This movie sounds... Kind of like uh, horror movies I've seen before, but I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. So this is a movie that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's coming out in theaters this coming weekend is one called The Card Counter. This is the latest from director Paul Schrader. And you probably know Paul Schrader best from his screenwriting um, talents, particularly since he was the screenwriter of movies such as Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and The Last Temptation of Christ, all of which were directed by Martin Scorsese. But as a director, he's, tur- he's, turned in, he's turned in some very good films. The last film that he directed that I remember is, or that I saw, was First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried. That I considered one of, the, one of my top ten best movies of 2017. But the card counter looks like this could be a return to form for Paul Schrader, at least in terms of a commercial comeback. But in the card counter, redemption is the long game. Told with Schrader's trademark cinematic intensity, the revenge thriller tells the story of an ex-military interrogator turned gambler haunted by the ghosts of his past. The movie stars Willem Dafoe, Oscar Isaac, Ty Sheridan, and Tiffany Haddish. Interestingly enough, I think this is 
Tiffany Haddish's first straight up uh, dramatic performance. I'm very interested to see this film. And one thing I'll tell you is that I will see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. The other films that are subject to be released in theaters are ones that probably won't be coming to a theater near you, but I'm going to tell you what they are anyway. There's one called Queen Pins, which is about a pair of housewives who create a $40 million coupon scan. A coupon scan. This is interesting. Yeah, because, of course, coupon fraud is a punishable offense. It's not as bad as Wall Street crimes, but still, $40 million for fraudulent coupons? That's interesting. So the movie stars Kristen Bell uh, and uh, Baby Rexa as the... uh, fraudulent uh, queen pins and it also stars kirby howell baptiste and paul walter hauser as presumably their husbands if they're not their husbands then they're probably either their partners in crime or the police set out to look for them i don't know what but that sounds like an interesting movie um i'll see it if it's out and if not well it's out for your viewing pleasure if you so choose The other movie that's coming out in theaters this coming weekend or subject to is one that's called The Alpinist. This is about a a solo climber um, who is a free-spirited 23-year-old who makes some of the boldest solo ascents in history with no cameras and no margin for error. Leclerc's, uh, the the character by the name is, by the way, is Marc-Andre Leclerc. His approach is the essence of solo adventure. Now, this is a foreign film, and it actually stars Marc-Andre Leclerc as himself. Oh, it's actually a documentary, not a fictional film. But this this sounds a lot like the documentary Free Solo, which won an Academy Award for Best Documentary, beating out the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary RBG, which I don't think it should have, but it was still an excellent documentary. But Marc-Andre Leclerc, obviously, unlike the title of this film, works with cameras here. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a film. So The Alpinist sounds like a very intriguing documentary, but I don't know if I'm going to see it because I don't know if it's coming out in a theater near me. Uh, There's another film that's coming out that's called Time is Up. And I think this is also going to be released on streaming, but on what platform, I don't know. But an accident will force Vivian and Royan to come to a stop and reclaim their lives one minute at, a, at the time and finally start living in the present that perhaps will prove to be more exciting than any predefined. The movie stars Bella Thorne, Benjamin Mascolo, uh, Sebastiano Pigassi, talk about an Italian name, and Roberto Davide. I don't know how this movie's going to be. Bella Thorne has disappointed me various times in the past, but I do have the feeling that Bella Thorne is one of those actresses who's not only talented, but also tenacious enough to eventually be in a, a good movie. It's going to be a, probably a while before she is. Is Time Is Up one of those movies? Possibly. But I will give it a chance and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.